Today on First Lady and Friends, I had such a fun conversation with Sarah's son, Miss Utah 2023. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's really eloquent in in the way she talks, and she's so passionate about what she's doing and the service that she's providing for the state. Uh, Can't wait for you to take a listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. I'm so excited for this episode. Today we have Sarah Sun, Miss Utah 2023. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. No, I'm so excited. You and I have gotten to know each other a little bit in the last little while. Um, you you came to our unified sports event, um, and it's just you're you've just been a breath of fresh air here in the state, and and I've been just so honored to get to know you. You're so kind. I have to say, one of my favorite experiences as Miss Utah was actually being mistaken for you by a little kid. Oh, he asked me <laughs> if you're Miss Utah. Does that mean that you're the husband of the mayor? Oh, and I can <laughs> only think the husband of the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. It's so great. It's so great. But I, I love, um, you know, how, how visible you've been and, and the things that you've been able to accomplish already. Um, I, but I want to go back. Let's start um, in your childhood. Like, where did you grow up? Um, tell me, you know, what life's been like thus far. Sure. Thanks. I actually grew up in Cedar City, Utah. So I'm a Southern Utah gal. I lived there for 15 years, but I relocated to Salt Lake City when I was 16. That's where I claim as home. And I am a religious convert. I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was 17. Um, that was right before I had headed off to college. So I did my freshman year at Cornell. And then I went on a mission in Southern California. Upon going back, I continued my education at BYU. And that's where I am. Mm, that's amazing. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family. My parents are immigrants from China, so they actually were assigned by the government to study music. They didn't really have a ton of say about what they pursued professionally. So when my dad was 11, that's when he left home for the first time, and he pretty much didn't see his family after that. My mom was 13 when she left home. And for them, the American dream was a very real and very tangible thing. It was really scary for them to leave everything that they knew behind to come pursue a better life for their family and to pursue education, which is something that matters to them so much and something that they've really instilled as a core value of mine. Uh, my mom actually graduated with her PhD just last year at age 62. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And she's been such an inspiration to me. But I think when I think of my parents, I think of their legacy of hard work, of invisible sacrifice, and um, their story that I think is representative of the love and dedication that so many immigrant families across the state and across the nation also experience. I I, I want to explore this a little bit more. I I find it really fascinating. I've read a lot of, of, of stories and a lot of histories, and I've had a lot of people that, that I've known and, and talked to about this sort of second-generation Americans and and really the the cultural um, worlds that you straddle, and so I want to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, you for the most most of your life you grew up in a very rural area where I am mm. positive because I know the area very well. <laughs> I'm positive there are not a lot of Chinese Americans. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's not like a a, a large contingent of of Chinese Americans mm-hmm. in Cedar City. Um, so talk a little bit about your experience, um, there. I mean, I assume Salt Lake, there's, there's more of a, of a community here, um, but in Cedar City, I imagine not. So maybe just explore with me a little bit, if you're willing to talk (laughs) a little bit about your experience straddling those, those cultural divides. Yeah, you're definitely right that there are not a lot of Chinese Americans in Cedar City. I was the only one in my school district and, I find humor in this, but as a kid, people who would try to bully me wouldn't even know which racial slurs to use because they'd never <laughs> seen anybody who looked like me before. <laughs> Silver lining there. Yeah. But I remember, you know, going through school and being in a lot of my Utah history classes. And it always was a class that seemed to really excite my classmates because, you know, my great uncle helped build you know, this part of the textbook that we're in. And I think it was something that I really saw united that community that I was part of. But it was never something that I thought that I could have a personal connection to. 
And it wasn't until this year that I realized there are that there have been over 12,000 Chinese migrants who stepped foot on Utah soil to help build the Transcontinental Railroad. In fact, uh, Senator Karen Kwan talked about Senator Karen Kwan um, talked about how, um, based on oral history, we think that eight Chinese workers laid the very last track of the railroad railroad that culminated in promontory, <laughs> at promontory point. And when I think about the dream of bridging the east and west. Um, for Americans to bridge the eastern United States with the western United States, and also my parents' dream of being a bridge from the east to the west. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that's been so sacred to me. Um, in fact, on Tuesday, there was the groundbreaking for the new monument that's going to be at the Utah State Capitol honoring the Chinese migrants, as well as the indigenous people and the freed slaves and Latter-day Saints who all work together in unity to help pave the path for this country that I love so deeply. And when I think about um, the people that were here, I'm so filled with pride to know that Chinese people really gave their all. Over 90% of the workforce in California was filled with Chinese migrants. And that is something that I feel so proud of. And yet I'm equally devastated when I think about how the Chinese migrants are often the ones who were paid the least. Um, They were the ones who were working in the most dangerous positions and doing the work that people really didn't want to do. But because China had been destroyed by the opioid crisis, there were millions of Chinese people who were desperate to just come have the opportunity to build a better life for their families. Um, I think about how so many Chinese died and gave their lives, and yet history has forgotten about them because they're undocumented. How can you document the name of somebody who you can't pronounce, whose language that you can't read, um, and for them to be mischaracterized and to, uh, I guess, just go unseen for so long is personal because I think of my father, and I think that he absolutely would have been one of the people who signed up to endure all of these perils um, for me. Mm-hmm. And I think of his experience in the United States as somebody who has been raised in a culture to be humble and to not speak up for yourself and to just endure and to work hard and to show with your actions um, the truth, you know, when people are mischaracterizing you. And as his child, I think that has been devastating when I think about the way that my peers or their parents are able to advocate for themselves or advocate for the people that they love. I think something that kind of demonstrates this is when uh, Governor Leland Stanford of California finally allowed Chinese people to step foot into American soil. These Chinese workers were so eager to prove their work ethic that they built in two days what it took the American workers two years to build. And that is not something that is just stereotypically Asian. It's something that has been built on a lot of despair and a lot of grief. Mm. So I'm so glad that the state of Utah is paying tribute to this history through this monument. And I hope that for the next 150 years, these stories can be remembered and can be continued to be shared. It's it's a powerful story. And like you say, one that was largely untold for a long time, um, which is heartbreaking. Um, I've read, again, I've read a lot of histories and, and read a history about the railroad, which was really powerful. Um, we also have uh, our former, and I'm trying to remember her name, but she, our former Utah State um, Poet Laureate, who was um, Chinese-American also and has Chinese heritage, she's written incredible poetry um, around uh, the the railroad and and. and and the immigrant stories. And so it's, it's really powerful. And I, I remember watching her, her, she had a whole presentation that I watched. It was really incredible. And, and it helped me to understand it a little bit more too. Um, I, I love that um, you've, you've connected with that and embraced it. Tell me maybe how, has it always been that way? Have you always decided you you wanted to embrace that, or was uh, straddling that cultural divide, you know, growing up? How was I mean? Were you always wanting to embrace this part of you, or you know, I know I, I've heard some uh, many you know 
people or don't know how to where I don't fit in this culture, but I don't know that I fit in this culture. Like, how was that growing up again, especially in rural Utah, you know, in these rural places that maybe don't ha- aren't exposed yeah. to people who look like you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, my blood is 100 percent Chinese, but I do feel 100 percent American. Mm, I grew I up, that. you know, surrounded by. American culture. In fact, when I was a missionary in Southern California, I served in a Mandarin speaking branch for two transfers. And people said that people who looked Chinese had a harder time connecting with um, the, you know, the Chinese people that we were trying to reach in the area. But I was like, I've never struggled that with that problem. And my branch president said, that's because from a mile away, somebody can tell that you're American just by your mannerisms <laughs> and the way you speak and your volume level. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. But I've always been really proud of my Chinese heritage. Mm-hmm. It's something that I really want to embrace. And quite frankly, I think the reason I haven't is simply because of a lack of opportunity to. Mm-hmm. I've really wanted to put more time into understanding the history of my people and the language um, now that I'm an adult. But as a kid, it's something that I was proud of and I wanted to share through the way I lived my life. Mm. Mostly what made me proud to be Chinese American is when I saw the sacrifices of my parents. Mm. I think it was so, it was such a big part of their upbringing to demonstrate through your actions, your love for people and like what you're capable of. And before, you know, I think there's there's really like kind of this like head down, go town kind yeah, of mentality. Yeah. And as somebody who was the first person to be born in America in my family, a lot of times my parents relied on me to be a bridge between them and American society. So I feel like I had to grow up pretty quickly. Mm. And it was me who was going to my brother's parent-teacher conferences. And it was me who was figuring out how to navigate the American college application process, you know, learning from the mistakes of my older sister and to, you know, really figure out like, these are the classes that you need to take. Like these are the extracurriculars that you need to be involved in um, because our family doesn't have a lot of money. This is how FAFSA works. This is how federal financial aid works. This is how private scholarships work. And to bring that down to my younger sibling and to also um, always be that that bridge between my parents and their places of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I had to figure things out really quickly from a really young age. And um, that's something that I think is just... Um, I don't know. I think it's something that I'm really grateful for, Mm. but it's definitely provided opportunities for me to see just how much my parents have struggled and just how much Mm. courage Mm. and strength that they've demonstrated um, and throughout that struggle. I don't know that I could do the things that my parents have done, Mm. but being able to help them almost like as an equal from the time I was so young, I think is something that's been unique to my family's culture. Um, but not necessarily unique to the immigrant experience as a whole. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Sorry, not no. unique to my culture, unique to me, my family. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I think that's it's that's powerful and, and a really interesting perspective that most of us don't think about. Um, I, I mean, so how... How long did it take your parents? I mean, how much English were they able, did they learn prior to coming here? And how how long did it take them to to really feel comfortable? I don't know, maybe they really interacting here with their community. Hmm. You know, this is an interesting question because something that's special about Utah is that this is a community-based state. Yeah. Like people come together. Yeah. Totally, totally. And I think there's so many times where my parents, like, I think when they think about when they recount their American experience, for them, it's all the highlights. Like, Mm. they talk about how when I came from, when I first came to hear from China, like, in China, they didn't have things like baby showers or like, you know, this is not a celebration of life. It's like you're pregnant. Wow, you have another mouth to feed. Too bad for you. But in the United States, and when they were pregnant with me, like their church community came together Mm. and they were there to show support for my mom. And I remember my mom being so touched for it by that. And she always tells me the story of Sarah, before you were even born, people from the church came together and had so many gifts for you, Mm. you know? And she's like, how could that have ever happened in China? And I think my mom is somebody who just naturally has this really effervescent spirit. Like she's so warm. She will get, if she were here right now, she'd be giving you candy from her purse. (laughs) (laughs) Like She'd be giving Josh candy. She'd be like, what a handsome boy. And Josh is the producer. I have for those of you who can't see this handsome face. Um, But I think my parents have always 
tried to learn. And I feel like even though they've never, I think for them, like their experience of coming to the United States has been one of gratitude. Mm. And I think the way my mom handled things is different too. There was a time where she was um, experiencing some discrimination when applying for jobs. And Mm. this one individual kept telling her over and over again, your English isn't good enough. You're not qualified this job because your English isn't good enough. And this was a woman who had won, you know, national awards in China and was applying for this music position. And he's like, you're not qualified because your English isn't good enough. Mm. And I feel like for me, I would have been outraged. Like, how dare you <laughs> Like, yeah. look past my accomplishments? Like, this is this is wrong. But what my mom did is she's like, if you think my English isn't good enough, then I'm going to make sure my English is good enough. So mm. she enrolled at a master's program at SUU in public administration. And every day she would work with me to refine her English. Like every email that she sent to a colleague or to a student, like she would have me review it. Mm-hmm. And there's so many times where I'm like, okay, take out this article, you know, like <laughs> the past participle, blah, 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 subject verb agreement. That's pretty right. good you knew that. I, was say, I don't think I could have done that. I think that's actually why I became so passionate about school. Mm. People think that, you know, stereotypically in Asian families, it's the parents being like, you have to be the best, you have to study, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it was because the things I was learning in English class were so directly applicable to helping my parents. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and I think like seeing how passionate she was about learning made me passionate about learning, and I think that's how I ended up, you know, with a lot of the opportunities that I had. Mm. Incredible. I want to continue this conversation. You have such a fascinating story, and you're so talented. And uh, we'll do that when we come right back. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. I have Sarah Sun here, Miss Utah 2023. Um, she's just inspiring i'm i'm having such a great conversation oh, you <laughs> we, so we've been talking about this idea of of immigrants and this immigrant story and and really this this your chinese american experience we were talking a little bit off mic and i want to bring it back to to the to the mic and to the podcast here um, we were talking about a book that I've read, and it's an author I've mentioned on the podcast a few times because her name is Amy Chua, and she's she wrote Political Tribalism, a book called Political Tribes, and it's it's a fascinating book about why we're tribal and and how we got here and how as humans mm. and and through human history and even our recent uh, U.S. history and and our and our not being able to understand political tribes has has really been to our detriment in places like mm. Afghanistan and places yes. like Vietnam. And, and it's just, she's a, she's a brilliant, brilliant person. And I, I really admire her, but she wrote the book, um, battle hymn of the tiger mother. Yeah. As you say, I always call it the tiger mom book. I always forget the whole title. Um, but it's it, years ago when it came out, it was very controversial and she got a lot of pushback um, because she talked about her experience as a parent and the differences between Western parenting and uh, Eastern or, or Asian parenting. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of people really misconstrued Mostly, I think people that didn't read the book misconstrued yeah. it. And that's usually the case. It's like it's like people see a headline and I'm always like, read the article, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> totally, totally. so it can be misleading. I th- I think she. A lot of people thought she was advocating for a certain way of parenting, which was sort of this Asian idea. Um, mm, like stereotypically strict, like practice the piano six hours a day. Yeah. Blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Which she did That's with true. her kids. Right. And uh-huh. then and then I think as you read the book and especially as you come to the end, you realize that she's just, you know, she's describing the strengths of both parenting styles. You yeah. know, I think she's saying that there's like a happy medium. And so talk a little bit about maybe like that experience and that book. You've obviously read it. And then she's written another one that you talked about, which I'm going to have to read. I didn't know about. And so maybe talk a little bit about that. And maybe because you're you are a concert pianist. I've seen it. It's unbelievable. You are incredibly talented and 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 you've worked obviously very, very hard. I mean, I I, I can say I play the piano like in you know quotes. That's really all you need. Because <laughs> like, no, no, say, no, no one really. actually cares if you're great at piano. Just oh, if you're no. good enough to play when the hymns. When I see you play, I was like, I wished. I wish I would have done a lot more than I did. But um, but so so it takes a you know obviously some a little bit of music talent, but mm-hmm. but it takes more you know like. 10% talent and 90%, 90% just yeah. flat out working your guts out. So talk a, maybe in that context sure. of, of like your experience uh, with your parents and maybe the, you know, how Amy Chua sees it and if it's similar yeah. to how you see it. Sure, sure. I don't want to misconstrue the thesis of her book. I, I read it 
probably over 10 years ago with my mom. So, but something I remember thinking about the book while we were reading it was just how it was validating how, you know, this is a style of parenting that I guess produces results. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I think. Well, it does. I mean, <laughs> so, look at you. No, no, I'm not no, saying that that's how you were raised, but, the, but even Amy always... Chua would say like, cause her, her kids. Right. I mean, they were concert pianist and concert violinist, like world yeah. renowned. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause I think, um, I think what a lot of people gloss over when they talk about like stereotypically Asian parenting is the motivation for both the parent and also the child Mm -hmm. because I I'm not gonna lie I did work very hard as a kid and in when I was growing up you know as a four-year-old I'd practice like between two and four hours every single day see and and to most (laughs) most American I mean like me personally (laughs) like that's crazy most most well most people they are told, and I was told as a parent, you you know, you don't even put your kid in until they're like eight years old. You mm-hmm. like don't even start that. So like for most people, that would seem really extreme, mm. right? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. My dad had this saying. He's like, you know, discipline, determination, and dedication. Like mm. that's like the formula for success. Okay. I was actually visiting my former piano teacher yesterday. She is not Asian, but she. Uh, has taught a lot of Asian students and she is like the epitome of discipline like she's like every day when I was a kid you know I knew six to eight every morning I had to practice and then four to six every day I have to practice and I was asking her like how do you produce such exemplary students Um, as I'm thinking about you know as I bring people into the like as I bring children into the world like how do I want to raise them I've been thinking about this a lot and she's like discipline just has to be part of your family culture from the day they're born Mm because if you try to force it on them later it's just not going to work but I think for me, my experience was less about like having a family culture of discipline and more about the family culture of sacrifice mm-hmm. because my family was kind of in a unique situation. My parents, they're, they straddle a lot of contraries. Like they're both music professors, but neither of them actually had a formal education because they grew up during the Cultural Revolution. You know, the Chinese government had a lot of control over who could go to school and who couldn't. So like my my mom, like she has a PhD now in viola performance, but she was never taught basic things like arithmetic mm-hmm. or like history or mm-hmm. science, you know? And so my parents knew when they came to the United States, they admittedly said that they didn't know a lot, but they knew one thing, which is that education is what will be the door for a better life. Mm-hmm. And I just saw how every day they would wake up and I felt just deep in their hearts that they would do anything for me to have the opportunities that they never had. And they were always so supportive of me. That's one thing that my parents did differently from Amy Chua. Amy Chua had like a very strict plan for her kids. Like you will do violin to learn this discipline. You will do X, Y, Z. I feel like from in my family, it was more like, you know, we know, we don't, we at, like, they were so humble to recognize, like, we don't know a lot about how this country works, how to be successful in this country. But what we do know, is that you can learn from anyone and we want you to learn from anyone. So if you have a passion, like for example, when I was a kid, I did theater. That's a very not stereotypically Asian thing to do. Yes. I loved musical theater. I loved dancing. I loved all, you know, participating in the arts, but I also loved science and math and everything that I wanted to do. They made sure that they communicated to me. If you put in the work, we want you to be the best at this. Like we will pay for you to have lessons and for to take from a really good teacher if you're willing to put in the work. So in my mind, it's like, how could I not put in the work mm. when my parents have given so much just for me to be in this country? And that's what kind of drove my desire to achieve is the love that I felt from my parents and the love that I wanted to show them. And the way I wanted to express gratitude for them was to be good at the things that they allowed me to do. Mm. That's powerful. That really is powerful and and something our our sort of Western culture, maybe that's what's lacking. Maybe it's that sacrifice mentality, that gratitude mentality, because we have such an abundance um, that that maybe we we aren't as cognizant or intentional about thinking about things like that. So that's that's an incredible contrast too. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So so let's see. You said you're learning about you know what what you would be like. So I mean, you're always the best parent before you have kids. But so you are like the best number one top parent right now. That's so funny. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So like, what have you learned? I mean, are you? Do you feel like? How do you instill that 
in your future kids. Yeah. If you, you know, like maybe you didn't sacrifice to, yeah. to like come to this country at an early age and da, 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 all yeah. that thing. Oh, you know. Abby, I think about this all the time. Oh, shoot. Don't stress <laughs> out about it. I'm just wondering. No, I think that's a great question. That's actually the like the foundational premise behind Amy Chua's book because mm-hmm. she's a second generation Chinese American yep. yep. and her children are th- with a third generation. And she states at the beginning how like um, she's like, you know, like sociologists talk about how the immigrants, you know, they work really hard. The second generation becomes very successful and then they have everything. So then they bring, you know, their kids into the world and they turn out to be spoiled brats. <laughs> and she's like, and that's why I wanted my kids to learn violin and piano and et cetera. Um, and I think for me though, something that has been really unique in my life is I'm a religious convert and my, uh, you know, conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ has really changed my paradigm on the world mm-hmm. and especially how I want to raise my family. Mm-hmm. It also contextualizes a lot of the experiences that I had growing up outside of the church. Um, since I've joined, my parents actually have joined too. Mm-hmm. And as all three of us have progressed in this faith, our relationship dynamics have changed tremendously. My parents, you know, they're Chinese, so growing up they were not super verbally affectionate. But I like every day, like we call each other in the morning and we pray together and we just express like, love and gratitude for each other like my parents every day like they'll text me like Sarah I love you like I'm proud of you and this is something that is like that's been new as a result of them you know being baptized and seeing how other families are and that's something that I think is so special I don't think that you can spoil a child by telling them how much you love them and I don't think that (laughs) and I think that's like I think that's kind of the key to how I want to raise my children is I want them to know that they're loved not only by me but by all the people who came before them whose names they might not know because records were destroyed by you know the cultural revolution and i think because i think i want them to know that because they are so loved and because they have generations of people behind them that they have a responsibility to be the best that they can be and to serve their communities and to give back i think being born into a position of privilege means that we just have even more responsibility to give Mm-hmm. And um, when I think about my, you know, my journey in life, I don't think my parents ever realized that, like, by supporting me to do theater and to be on stage and to be in speech and debate that and to do piano, that one day I'd be Miss Utah. Mm-hmm. Like, Miss Utah literally has been the culmination of all these things that I have been interested in that they, you know, they didn't really ever expect for there to be a payoff. But now I'm in a position where I feel like I can really give back and where I can where I can serve and where that can, where I can just not only like give my parents back the spotlight, but also the spotlight to a lot of people whose stories will probably go untold for a long time, like people who are incarcerated or, you know, other immigrants um, in the state. But I don't know. I just think about how, um, like, something I really love about Utah um, is that there's a really strong sense of community and the extent to which that is affected by the church is not something I can really speak to. But I do know that I want my kids to grow up in an environment where community is a really big part of the place that we live. I I think my parents have outsourced a lot of their parenting to like my piano teachers or like my teachers. Like they, they place a lot of trust in yeah. like our community. And they also trusted me enough to be like, you know, I trust that she's smart enough to filter through truth, mm-hmm. you know, to filter through the distortions of the world, to recognize like what is good in principle. And I think like as we expose ourselves to different perspectives, like that only helps us grow as people. Something that is also really important to me in my, you know, my pro-parenting strategy yes. <laughs> as somebody who is not married, who's not had children, yes. is like, I really want my my children to be exposed to diverse perspectives. Mm-hmm. Like I, and not just exposed like on an intellectual level, like, you know, these people exist, but to be like in the trenches with them. Like I, like, I, I think class is something that I think about navigating in the future because my parents did not grow up with any money and when I was a kid our family also didn't have a ton of money um but I've been privileged to have this you know excellent education and you know hope to be in a profession that feels fulfilling where I can serve and that also will provide for my family that's important to me and I think wealth is something that I want to be really intentional at navigating because I never want my children to take for granted that having three meals a day and like having a roof over their heads is like I just don't want them yeah. to take that for granted. Yeah. And I want them to be the kind of people that somebody who doesn't have that can feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a really long answer. Yeah. Sorry. No, <laughs> no, I love it. And and it's really, it, you know, you talked about this heritage 
and we all come at it in a different way, but the, it's it really is true. I mean, I I grew up in a, a home very poor. I mean, there were ten kids. We lived on wow. a farm. My my dad was. Um, I mean, he he had. I mean, at one point he lost his job. He actually lost his business because he started a business and it it failed. Mm. And and there was a point where we didn't have. I mean, he was out of a job, and you know, my mom. She was a school teacher, but she she hadn't been teaching for a long time, and um, so we were. I mean, literally, un, he was unemployed for uh, for a short time. Mm. But um, I we did. I mean, I grew up in kind of a that way where I just we just didn't have much, but we were always. You know, it was that gratitude for what we had it was the gratitude that the you know those even in Utah I think you talked about the sense of community and the sense of a sacrifice um it really is in our heritage yeah um you think about the the pioneer ancestors that came here that yeah. you know and and it really was that um generational thing where we there was a lot of sacrifice and so we did yeah. you know we have been taught that our whole lives i think in utah that utah yeah. history that you know you have come from yeah. these really tough pioneer ancestors and we should be grateful yeah so i don't think it's dissimilar to to your experience yeah no i think you're so right i served at a historic site in california when i was a missionary and they talked about the mormon battalion which was the nation's first religious military contingent mm-hmm. and how everywhere they went there was they were they served the communities that they were part of um, and I loved what you said about, um, I loved what you just said. Also, it reminds me to talk about the book, The Triple Package, that yes, we were going to yes, talk yes, about earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, Amy Chua examines three cultural groups and their ascent into like prosperity. And she said the groups that have had disproportionate success in terms of population were the, were the Asians, the Jews, and the Mormons. And she examines the triple package, which is like the, the set of traits that breed success. Mm-hmm. So the first I think is, uh, she said, you have to have a chip on your shoulder, <laughs> like yeah. something to prove, yeah. you know, you, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ have been persecuted for a very long time. Yeah. Like they were not considered part of the white race. Yeah. You know, they bad news bears like. Yeah. Uh, and then you also have to simultaneously have a superiority complex, according to Imishua. Mm-hmm. So that is like, you know, for the Chinese, she's like, we're part of the oldest, longest civilization. Like, you know, so much yeah, to look yeah. to. I think as a Latter-day Saint, what I point to is like, you know, we have a divine destiny as children of God. Um, and it's not like something that makes us better than anybody else, but it's just like we're destined for greatness and we want to take everybody along with us on this journey to, you know, becoming a divine being. And then the third thing is the ability to delay gratification. Mm. So it's like that discipline muscle again, yep. you know, yep. but I think that's cool. That's, that's baked into our culture. Yeah. And also like Utah history, like Utah has been a pioneer for so many things. Utah was the first state of the nation to allow women to vote. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Well, no, I love the first. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. It's, but, it's, we, we do have a great heritage here. And I think you talked about the community aspect and I think that's where it comes from. And I, I love that, you know, Chinese culture um, has so many um, connecting points Mm-hmm. with with the culture here in Utah and and I it's just such a great thing for us all to come together and and learn from each other's stories. Yeah. Um you you've been able to do some great things and I I want to talk more about your experience with Miss Utah and and the things you're able to do there and sure. and what's coming up for you in your life and we'll do that when we come right back. We're back here on First Lady and Friends with Sarah Sun, Miss Utah 2023. Um, so talented, um, so intelligent. You, you've you just, obviously you shined or you wouldn't oh be um, in the position you're no, in. Obviously you know how to build people up or <laughs> you wouldn't be in the position you're in. Yeah, touche. <laughs> I... Uh, uh, no, I mean I've watched your performances and and I've watched and and really I've just I've seen people embrace you, um, and you know again at our at our unified sports tournament our soccer tournament the, I mean just the kids coming up just loving you and and oh they were so it's cute. the princess and oh, she, you know you wear those your were crown great and, kids. oh those were, so much that fun. had nothing to do with me they were just no good but kids. like how did you I mean I I was like I. I grew up with lots of sisters and we, of course, we ended up, we were farmers and we were ranchers and we rode horses and we played sports, but I never, and we all played the piano, um, a little bit, some more than others, some better than others, (laughs) (laughs) me, not so much, but, um, 
But how did you get into pageanting? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm just wondering, like, pageants I mean, are a unique thing. And yeah, I think like, anybody who ever knew me 10 years ago is asking you the, the same, same thing. thing because <laughs> I was ugly as a kid. <laughs> Not that that's what pageants are about. Yeah. But I had silver teeth. I cut my own banks. They were crooked. <laughs> I were exclusively hand-me-downs. I was just so awkward in every situation. If you asked me to talk to a boy, I would rather yeah, yeah, yeah. probably just drop dead in that moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I have a beautiful older sister. She was involved in pageants. And um, I was, you know, grew up looking up to these women who were just really cool to me. And I think the reason why is because not only are they driven and, you know, you know, excellent, but there's this service com- component mm-hmm. to the competition. I think that's something that's really unique to the Miss America opportunity is that every girl is required to have a service platform of some sort. And that service component actually started in Utah. Mm-hmm. That's Utah's impact. On I Miss did America. not know that. Isn't that cool? That's such a great thing to Go learn. Utah. Yeah. Go Utah. And when I was in college, I started tutoring people who had been uh, formerly incarcerated or had some sort of criminal record. And that was one of the most rewarding parts of my college experience over in New York. And then I was really disheartened when I realized how high the recidivism rate is. It's at over 40%, which means within three years, nearly half of these people would be back in prison. And I was thinking about why does this happen? And if you think about how much the world has changed in the past five or 10 years, like it's unrecognizable. And if somebody is locked away for that entire time and they come out, the world that they knew how to navigate before is not even the same world. A lot of times their families have moved on. A lot of times they don't have the same network or community resources that you know existed when they were back before and they get sucked into lifestyles that might have contributed to them being incarcerated to begin with. Um, when I came to Utah, I I recognized that there was a need for those programs that existed in New York to be in Utah. So I wanted to help. And for the entire first year I was in Utah, I was just knocking on doors and I felt like nothing was really taking. Like I was just a 20-year-old girl who wanted to help people with criminal records. And people were like, we don't care about you. Yeah. <laughs> we, Whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then the Miss Utah crown was p- placed on my head. And suddenly so many doors were opening. Mm. I had been trying to teach a music course at the prison for so long. And as soon as I was crowned, I was actually able to make that happen. Mm. I chose music because that's the thing that I'm qualified to teach at this point in my life. But also because music is politically anodyne enough where I feel like I can use that as a stepping stone to show how education and programming in prisons lead to better outcomes. My goal is eventually for there to be a degree granting program within the Utah State Correctional Facility. That's something that's a few years away, but something that I've been really privileged to be able to work toward. Um, As Miss Utah, I've also been able to speak to the Lieutenant Governor of Utah. She's absolutely amazing. And uh, and I, I got to talk to her about partnering with one of her initiatives, Return Utah. And since then, I feel like I've been given a seat at the table to discuss really real ways to impact the lives of court involved Utahns. And I've been added by a second chance hiring task force that you know includes representatives from the Utah Department of Corrections, Utah Department of Human Resource Management, and other community entities that are finally coming together to consolidate our efforts to helping people. Um, when people talk about pageants being irrelevant to society, you know, this is something that I actually think that's a valid thing to think. Yeah. You know, I, I I think the pressures of looking a certain way or kind of meeting people's expectations for what like, Miss Utah should look like or act like have been. Scary. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think what really drives me is the idea that with this platform, I can help people in ways that I've never been able to. And that's what drew me to the organization. This was my first year doing Miss Utah. I didn't really know what to expect, but I knew that if I, you know, I felt like if my motivations were pure, then the Lord would help me. Mm-hmm. And he did. Um, and uh, that's actually another Miss Utah story. Um, something that's been really prevalent in my years, the chance that I've had to speak to different religious groups across the state. And I think that came from a decision I made at the competition, which was to wear um, this long-sleeved white dress. Um, Really not that interesting, but it sparked a national conversation um, after going viral. And the reason why is because before I was competing, I was told, you can either wear a modest dress or you can win Miss Utah. You can't do both. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like that was so silly because the evening gown portion of the competition is designed for you to showcase your style. And what is style? I think style is, style is an outward representation of who you are. Mm-hmm. And the church and uh, I, not just the church, but, but learning about the nature of God mm-hmm. and learning about the nature of Jesus has transformed every fiber of my soul. Mm-hmm. And it was a motivating force for everything that I do, every twist that I've made since. And I knew I wanted to represent that in the clothing I wore. Something that I've realized is unique about the Latter-day Saint conception of modesty is that it's not uh, 
it's not about covering your body to hide from the male gaze. Modesty is something that applies to men and women. It's about honoring covenants that you've made with God. And it's something that I think is very empowering and very agentive. Um, and I think another, you know, way to think about modesty, it's not just the way we project, but it's also the way that we view other people. You know, are we seeing their hearts first? And are we presenting ourselves in a way where people have a chance to see our hearts before they judge our bodies? And that's something that I hope to carry with me as I prepare for Miss America, which is happening in two months. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's yeah. so well, I love that. And, and you know, it. I do remember hearing that. And I remember, you know, kind of seeing the stories about that. And, you know, it, it really is an interesting conversation to have all over the, the country. And I think it's a great one to have. Um, and, and just the sort of personal nature of how we present ourselves. Yeah. But also the fact it's interesting because different religious um, traditions have different clothing, you know, representations or, or things that, you know, even in the Muslim community, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've had friends from the Muslim faith on the podcast and a youth and we talked about wearing their hijabs to school and, and, and what that's like and, mm-hmm. and the conversations around that. And I, I just think, you know. Utah is a un- a unique place it- to tell that story. And so I love mm-hmm. that that you did and I love that you weren't afraid to tell your story in that way. Um I had, you know, and, and we have many friends that are LDS that do the the pageants that don't and that's okay yeah. too. You know oh, what I mean? Like that's something to I've, me it's like I love yeah. the fact that that and and the way you talked about modesty and that being such a personal issue and yeah. and such a way that we decide how to present ourselves. That's something I really want to underscore is that I don't think modesty has anything to do with clothing. Yeah. And like I think yeah, I totally agree. So many stunning women that step across the Miss Utah stage who are amazing role models who I look up to deeply who could have been an amazing Miss Utah. And I think the thing about modesty as you said is it's it's not about the clothing we wear. It's about the way that we view other people. It's about the way that we um, choose to honor, I don't know. I it's, it's about the way that we choose to represent the things that matter to us. And I think that looks different for every single person. And that's just how I felt like I wanted to represent that in that one instance. Yeah. And I think it's something that is constantly changing. It's a journey for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, it's a journey, you know, and I talked about this too on a podcast but just with parenting I mean I've got a daughter who's 17 and we've navigated this and you know in in our faith tradition we you know I I learned modesty very differently than I'm teaching her modesty Mm. so Mm. I think Mm. culturally it has shifted even within uh you know the religious faith um, and the way that that people talk about it, the way the way you're representing it really resonates with me personally. But it's not the way I was taught as a as a young. Oh, that's woman. fascinating. So see, I came into this pretty recently. Yes. <laughs> so it, it yeah. really is a very different uh, way to talk about it. And I think it's it, it's moved in a very in my in my estimation, a very positive direction where it's very healthy in thinking about. Um, our bodies and how we represent who we are. And so I, I, I actually love the way that you've you've portrayed this because I think it is really empowering to a lot of young women who are feeling confused about oh, maybe the cultural, uh, how we navigate cultural situations like that and religious and how we sort of merge the two. So I, I love the way you've done that. I think you've been a great example to a lot of young women and women around the state and, and around the country. I mean, so um, we we had, you know, we had a, a bill that ran and I've been, you know, supportive of it where, um, you know, Representative Candace Perucci and and Luna Benori, who's been a, on the program, too, where we talked about girls um, in athletics and being able to wear mm what it is that you want to wear because there was a lot of controversy around like what uniforms look like and and they there was a lot of restrictions on no you have to wear this uniform and you know the with the muslim community it was you couldn't wear your hijab because that wasn't part that what didn't mm-hmm. fit with the the team's uniform mm-hmm. and you know there's a lot of you know, LDS girls that don't want to wear, you know, they want to play volleyball, but they don't want to wear, you know, the really tight mm-hmm. spandexy, t- you know, mm-hmm. yeah. almost bikini bottom type yeah. shorts. 
So, and, and that's just a personal issue and it's a personal thing. And, and I think honoring everybody's um, journey through that and, and their own personal convictions, I think is really powerful. And you, yeah. you set the stage for that and, I, and it's a great conversation oh, to have. You're too sweet. I like, I like what you said too, because I think what I was thinking as you were talking about this is, you know, I think modesty or, you know, whatever. I think it's about being an agent. Yeah. You know, it's about, it's about like, I can take control of my narrative in certain ways and I can choose to present myself and it doesn't really matter about what people are perceiving, but what matters is the chance I had to exercise my own choice Mm -hmm. over this decision. Yeah. And I think I'm a huge believer in free will. I think people should be able to make choices that best um, align with what they believe and what, what matters to them. I think that's what makes this country great is that people are different. And that everybody can exercise their agency differently. Yep. No, it's it's powerful. And I think it's giving people permission. And you talked about this platform and, and what it's – the opportunity it's given you. It's it's a lot of what, you know, people are like, well, I've never seen a first lady do this or that or that. You know, and I'm like, yeah. well – Oh, you're killing it. Well, well you are no, so cool. You. It's so true. No, I just, yeah. I just think, you know, you and I have this – similar opportunities like you say you you got you opened doors this open this opportunity opened doors that you didn't have before that weren't open to you before absolutely I feel the same way in that you know there's there's a lot of opportunities I have to meet people to to connect with organizations and and you talked about you know being able to to take different organizations that are maybe doing similar work and bringing them together. That's a lot of what the, we've been doing in, in in our office is really just, and our show up team is really bringing people together that maybe are doing similar work or, or, or shining a spotlight. And so I, I love that you're taking the opportunity Thank you. that you've been given and just making the most of it because you've been you. very visible and it's very, very inspiring. Can I tell you something? Yes, please. So I did a poll um, recently for a class assignment and it's kind of examining what people perceive society values in women versus what people actually value in women. And something that's unique about this role is that what I look like actually plays a role in how people perceive me. This is not something that I've ever really wanted to subject myself to. Right. (laughs) Most of us, I think that's true. Yeah. No, I love that. But I was thinking, I was like, you know, especially with Miss America approaching, I've been thinking about, um, I guess what this organization is saying to girls. So I did the survey and I ranked, you know, nine different traits. For example, physical fitness, eloquence, personal style, um, facial attractiveness, leadership ability, intelligence, um, talent, like all these different traits. And I asked people to rank them, rank them in order of how you think society values this in women. And number one and number two were overwhelming facial attractiveness, physical fitness, style. Mm. But then when I said, Okay, now you rank like how what you value. Number one was intelligence. Number two was ambition, and number three was orientation towards service. I thought that was so cool because I think okay, but actually wait. But then there's one more part of this story yeah. is that leadership ability was ranked like number like nine for what they feel like society yeah, <laughs> yeah. valued, and like for pers- like you know when personally it was like somewhere like in the bottom quartile. Okay. So I was thinking about these results. I'm like, what does this say? I think we need more women to step up to lead. I think a lot of times like we don't realize that I don't I think we don't realize that leadership ability in women is important because we don't really see it. What I love about the Miss America opportunity is that it empowers women to lead. That is actually the new national tagline is empowering women to lead. And you've created this competition where people are we're literally in the scoring system like your intelligence and your ambition and your community like your orientation towards service is weighted the most out of anything. People say it's a beauty pageant, but you can't be successful in this organization if you don't have that desire to make a difference. Mm. And when I think about how Miss America for the past hundred years at times has, has literally been a beacon of American femininity and it has at times marketed itself as uh, like the ideals of like America. Yeah. Of what being, a woman should yeah. look like. Yeah. 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 And I think it's really important to note how this competition is no longer about, or at least I, it shouldn't be about your, like what you look like. It's about like what you care about. It's about the effort that you've put into developing your talents. It's about giving women a platform where they can learn how to use their voice. I grew up being pretty shy. It's scary for me to be vulnerable. It's scary for me to talk to people. You guys should have seen me preparing for this interview. I was like (laughs) so nervous. And I've been able to grow into the kind of leader and person that I want to be. I'm not there yet, but this experience has really helped me grow. And the thing about this experience is that it's open to 
any woman, you know, between the ages of like 13 to 28, if you're a woman who's ever wanted to better yourself in any way, you have a home, you have a place in the Miss Utah opportunity. Miss Utah especially is actually one of the strongest state programs in the nation. It's the third biggest. Mm -hmm. There are 47 girls who competed. And I think only South Carolina and maybe like Georgia, I don't want to misspeak, but I'm pretty sure those are the only two. Actually, don't quote me on that. But like, <laughs> like you know, big pageant Southern states, yeah. like like the average number of contestants is like 20 something. In Utah, we had 47. Wow. And as Miss Utah, it's a full-time job. It's a full-time job. It's very unique that Miss Utah gets to do school while they're being Miss Utah. I've been very privileged to have that opportunity. But historically, like, you know, these title holders have done so many amazing things and have done so many initiatives that they've just put school on hold. Mm. And um, I, as Miss Utah, I get paid a stipend. Like, I, like, I've made over 100 appearances in less than five months. And my board is phenomenal. And they've been so empowering and so encouraging for me to be who I am. This really is a launching pad for women. Yeah. And it's not a pageant. Yeah. And I think something that I actually am really proud of is I definitely was not the most like beautiful, conventionally attractive woman who competed. Like, if that, no, that's like, no, 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 I'm dead serious. I'm not being humble, guys. Like, you should see a picture of me. There's a reason why this is a podcast. <laughs> but, but like what I love about that, it's not some, it's something I embrace and something I'm proud of because I want women to see themselves in me. I want people to see like, oh, Miss Utah isn't like this like supermodel girl. She's just, she's just like, a nice Latter-day Saint girl who cares about things yeah. and who wants to make a difference and who believes in her ability to serve and to lead. Mm. That's the heart of this program. So if you're a girl listening to this or if you have daughters, tell them to do Miss Utah yeah. or Miss Utah's teen. There's even a little Miss Utah program for like girls between the ages of five to 11 and consider being involved or donating or volunteering or just attending. And you really will have your perspective change as you get to know more people who have participated in this. Oh, I love that. Uh, it's a great plug. And, and again, we've, we've worked with Miss Utah before and we will continue to because it, it really is as an opportunity for, for women to lead and to, and to be out there and have, have a platform to do good. And, and it's just something we believe in. So Sarah, this has been such a delight for me oh, and I so appreciate much. this conversation and for you to be so vulnerable and talk to us about um, such personal uh, stories and to share your story because it means a lot. So thank, thank you, you again so for being on here with us. Thank you, Miss America, Abby Cox. <laughs> I appreciate your time. <laughs> for more information, you can go to missutah.org. Thanks for being a friend. <laughs> <laughs>